Hello and welcome to the Bombay Film Story. This is that podcast where we, of course, look at the world of films in Bombay. What else? Here's what's slightly different about this episode, though. Now there are so many podcasts, there are interviews, and this is also an interview. Yes, but it's an interview about an interview. My name is Mayank Shekhar. I'm in conversation with director Smriti Mundra. She interviewed Aditya Chopra, Bollywood's number one producer, and that was his first. public conversation before a camera for the documentary series the romantics that i'm pretty sure you've seen on netflix the romantics is the story of yashraj films founded by yash chopra aditya is the son of yash chopra smriti mudra is the director uh, and for the creator of the romantics is also the daughter of the famous filmmaker jag mudra asal we'll talk about that and so much more thank you so much smriti for joining us on the bombay film story i'm so happy to be here thank you mayank So well, you know what? Um, when I say we'll talk about that and more, actually, I really want to just talk about one thing uh, to start <laughs> with. Is clearly how did you pull off the romantics? I mean, it's a coup at every level. For me as a journalist, I was the most envious person watching. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, this is what we've been meaning to have forever. I mean, I have a, a request, an interview request with Yashraj for almost twenty years now. So, <laughs> how did you pull that off? It was a slow, laborious process, Mayank. I won't lie. It was, you know, I mean, when I first approached. Uh, Yashraj films about this idea about wanting to do a docu series on Yash Chopra and his legacy and impact on Hindi cinema. You know they were interested and you know um, were very game to participate in that and were very accommodating in terms of all of the access to all the materials, the films, you know even the behind the scenes, you know all of those things. And then I just started getting more and more greedy, you know, about it mm-hmm. because the story just started expanding in front of my eyes. You know, um, Yash Chopra, of course, had a, has an incredible legacy. You know, um, a career that spanned over fifty years and. and you know made some of the most iconic films that shaped you know the 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 image of hindi cinema you know um that the world knows but the more you know i dove into it the more i realized how much the studio was its own story and then of course you know aditya chopra carrying the torch you know to the next generation was its own story and i really wanted all of that to be part of the series and you know in terms of finally getting Aditya to agree to do an interview. It was not an easy process because initially that was like a, a, a definite no. It was an absolute clear boundary, you know, um, that they said that he will not appear on camera. He will not participate. You know, we will help you however you need, but don't 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 ask. <laughs> like don't even ask okay. <laughs> for that interview. And then finally, you know, I had my crew in India. You know, we were filming all these interviews with everybody else, and um, I had been talking to Aditya off the record. You know, kind of just for background context, etc. You know, um, to tell the story. And I finally initially convinced him. that you know why don't we just talk i have my crew with me why don't we just record it and that way you can have it for your personal archives you don't have to sign the release and allow me to use it but at least you know you'll will have it you know you'll have it for your for your vault and somebody can find it you know 50 years from now and make when they make the documentary about you and so he agreed to that first he said okay only audio we'll only do audio and you can just have it as a reference you know uh, for fact checking and things like that then i said you know when we're here with the audio we might as well turn the camera on and uh, so then he you know very reluctantly agreed to that you know knowing that it was still going to be kind of under his control you know that it wasn't asking him for directly for permission you know to use the interview and then back in in Los Angeles i just started editing that interview into the series and this was like a very big risk because you know if you know how editing works and how documentaries are made it's a very it laborious everything right yes 
It changes everything. Yeah. And it's a very laborious process. So we had, here we were, you know, eight, nine months of editing, cutting him into, you know, the series and this very, you know, and if he then, and the, the idea was that we would show it to him, you know, and then hope that he would see what I saw, which is how important, you know, his perspective would be in this story and telling the story. And the risk was that he would say no, like, how dare you take it all out, you know, and be totally horrified, you know, and then we'd have to, you know, we would have wasted all that time. But it was a risk, I think, you know, now in hindsight, maybe I realized it was very, it was very foolish, but it was a risk I was willing to take at the time, because I think, you know, what little I had learned about Aditya Chopra up to that point was that he's very moved by creative integrity. And if I could show him how vital his perspective would be in this series, um, in this series that was, you know, largely about his dad and about his family, that would tip the scales. And thankfully, it did. Uh, Because when he did see it, finally, when we were done editing everything, he kind of saw that you can't really tell the story of Yashraj films without his input, without his perspective. Right. I mean, if you had recorded him in audio, we would have missed out on actually seeing him in person, which no one had until they switched on the romantics, right? And, you know, and of course, we heard of him. He's that enigma, he's that mystery. Uh, there are enough people who work in the Bombay film industry who work with him rather closely. And, and they really talk about how he's straightforward, uh, pretty sincere in his dealing, in his public dealings, also in his commercial dealings. How did he come across to you? You know, very much, you know, in that way, like very, I mean, he's very clear in his vision, you know, and he's mm-hmm. very clear about his boundaries and he's not like, one to you know hang out and you know like all of that you know like uh, socialize or anything like that that was very clear I mean at least to me that was very clear but he's was always available you know if I needed something and obviously I needed a lot you know from the studio and to, and to put this series together mm. all the archival materials I mean he really made that process very seamless and very accessible and I think that speaks to just honestly how well run and organized the studio is um, that all of that material was readily available to me and when I needed to have conversations just for background and context you know, he and Oday and others, you know, were very available to me, or they made people available to me to make sure, you know, my facts were right. And, you know, all of that, that sort of thing. And then, you know, when I finally, you know, got to him to speak on camera, like it was very, there was no like, uh, okay, list, there was no handler in the room, there was no list of topics I can talk about and cannot talk about, you know, there was no like, nothing, you know, and I think he really, what I really appreciated is that he really respected my integrity as a filmmaker, you know, in this process. And he never tried to have a heavy hand in any of this and never even asked to see anything or never asked, questioned any of my choices or my decisions and how to tell the story or anything like that. And then when he did relent, you know, to giving an interview, even though at the time we did the interview, he hadn't relented to me using it. When he would talk, he would talk in the most straightforward way and and anything was game. So that was, you know, very refreshing, honestly. And, and I think that's ultimately what comes across in the series and what made it so special, you know, um, is that he just, there was no topic that was off limits to him. Right. Also now, if he's on the street, we know what he looks like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which I don't know now he might, you know, colonize Mars or something. <laughs> with this but but uh you know definitely disturbed his peace i'm sure but uh but you know it was i think if there was ever a time to do it and i and i you know i mean if i don't I, I cannot speak for him i don't know what you know i would imagine this would be the one and only time and it was really because you know this was the series was meant to be the definitive story about his father his studio his family so if there was ever a time to speak you know maybe this was so when you say that he's not much of a social person you mean in your conversations with him, he came across as rather cut and dry. And it's like, okay, now we're done. The camera's off. Bye-bye. 
Well, this is, I will only <laughs> I will only speak for myself because I'm sure he socializes with other people in his life. But you know, for me, it was really you know. I mean, he was like I said, he was very available for whatever I needed, you know, um, professionally, and you know, he was very you know genial in all of our interactions. And I think all of the, you know, everyone who has talked about his sincerity and his straightforwardness is absolutely right. Like it was very much that way, you know, but it's not like we were hanging out and, you know, playing video games or having lunch or, you know, <laughs> and I think he's very focused on his work. And I think he's very focused on his studio to run. He's got a, the stakes are very high with, you know, all of the other work that he's doing. He's got much bigger, you know, romantics, you know, though it was the biggest thing happening in my life, you know, for so many years, you know, for him, it's a docuseries, you know, that that somebody approached and asked to do and he's making giant movies with big stars and that require a lot of his time and attention. So, um, you know, I think considering all of that, how accessible he was to me in terms of all of everything that I needed, all of, you know, the questions that I had, um, et cetera, I'm, I'm pretty surprised by, you know. So was he convinced because he'd seen other works of yours, Smithy, or how did this work? Because you're not a Bombay person. Uh, you certainly yeah. hadn't known him personally uh, before you perhaps met him. What convinced Yashraj to start with and Aditya thereafter, according to you. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interestingly, this process started prior to my Oscar nomination, prior to Indian matchmaking, you know, which mm. is a... Oh, wow, show. really? Yeah, it was before Indian matchmaking as well. Before Indian matchmaking as well. So really all I had, you know, to show for myself was one documentary, which was very acclaimed, you know, called mm. The Suitable Girl. And everything else sort of came out after they had already given me the green light to do this. But I think, you know, I, I I tried to present, you know, a thorough vision, you know, in terms of what I wanted to do. And I think based on that, you know, Aditya took a chance on me, you know, um, and agreed to go with it. Um, and I'm, I feel really lucky for that. And honestly, hopefully he feels like there was, you know, a little bit of foresight, you know, because obviously my career trajectory has changed, you know, pretty significantly in the years that we've been working on this project. So, Hopefully he saw something, you know, <laughs> saw something valuable there. But yeah, it was really before any of my, you know, more notable accolades. It was he he agreed even before all of that. Fantastic. I mean, of course, there's the other part of Smithy, which is that you are, you know, a Bollywood child in your own right. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, your father was the yeah. first person who set up a single screen cinema in Los Angeles for Bollywood movies. So clearly you're coming from a space of love. And something that you may have managed to sort of, you know, put across, perhaps? Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think so. I mean, you know, there's, I, like so many, you know, NRI kids, I grew up watching, you know, Hindi films and and then, but I had that extra connection, you know, because my father and my mother uh, ran this theater, you know, this was before I was born, but they ran this theater, which became a hub, you know, for the, the Desi community in Southern California and exhibited a lot of the, you know, um, the notable films of that time, including Kabi Kabi, actually. But I sort of grew up as both like half inside, half outside, you know, because mm. I spent a lot of time, I spent probably more time in India than a lot of my peers. You know, um, I was, I lived there as a child and then I spent, you know, every summer, you know, in India, three months every year. I was there, you know, I kind of saw the transition, you know, post-liberalization. I was there in the days, you know, when there was just Doordarshan on TV. Mm. And then I was there after in the Channel V and, you know, all of those colors and all of that explosion. You know, I, I, I so I, you know, I kind of had more familiarity than I think with a lot of my NRI peers, but also still, you know, very much an outsider in the sense that I was raised outside of India and had an outsider's perspective, had built at that point most of my career, you know, outside of India. So I think maybe like that, 
gave me sort of a unique advantage to telling the story where I knew enough, you know, um, to ask the right questions, but didn't know, you know, enough to take anything for granted. So, you know, that was definitely part of like what I had pitched in terms of, you know, why the why me, you know, um, like, why should they trust me to tell the story is and, and, you know, maybe that's also partly why, you know, like, because I think a lot of people can say that they grew up loving, you know, Hindi films. But, you know, I also grew up sort of in the film industry. You know, I've been a filmmaker. I've gone to film school. My father was a filmmaker. Um, and so I had a little bit more familiarity, you know, of the how that works, um, but also just an outsider's curiosity. Right. I mean, of course, your father also made Provoke, which starred Ashwarya Rai, was a big film back in India as well. There was Bawander, which is a critically famed uh, film. But, you know, and a lot of people who watch the romantics, you know, they're going gaga over the nostalgia that the series generates. I have to say, uh, Smithin, there's also a nostalgia that Jagmundan generates for a whole VHS generation. You know, he made these racy, erotic thrillers, and they sort yes. of grew up. The 90s kids kind of grew up on that uh, as well. You know, is, th is that something that you might want to work on as well? The short answer is absolutely. Um, okay. You know, my father is my biggest source of inspiration, you know, in my life and in my career. And so much of my career, though, you know, a lot of my um, successes came after he passed away. But, you know, every door that's opened to me, you know, in my career has been opened because of him, because of some seed that he planted, you know, um, in some form or another. So, you know, he's a hugely influential force in my life, you know, and I have a lot of benefits, you know, and a lot of privilege because of the path that he blazed, you know, um, in his own way. And definitely, you know, one day I want to do something with that story. You know, I think for me, I'm still in a process of discovery, you know, about that story. You know, my my father, he died very suddenly and unexpectedly. So it took a long time for me to reconcile, you know, that. And as my career grew and I became more successful, that was also a little bit painful for me that, you know, he wasn't here to experience any of that with me. Um, but now I think I'm getting to a point where I'm uh, ready to embrace and revisit, you know, his life and his stories and his career through um, the people that knew him. And, you know, one day, hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to whether I don't know what form it will be, whether it's a memoir or a, a, a fiction, you know, film or a documentary or something, but in some way, you know, like, I will definitely tell his story, you know, in, in all its dimensionality, you know, because he had a very adventurous life and a very adventurous career. I mean, I think one element of an autobiography that we may have seen in your work and of course everyone's seen Indian matchmaking as well and I'm pretty sure they'll continue to. I mean we see a Seema auntie in Indian matchmaking but if I'm not mistaken Smithy, at some point you actually had gone to see uh, Seema auntie for yourself. Is that correct? That is true. Seema auntie before she was uh, Seema from Mumbai or you know Seema auntie for the world she was Seema Didi to me and she was my matchmaker. Oh, wow <laughs> and that's and, and you featured her in a suitable girl and then you saw a story that can be turned into what became indian matchmaking would that be correct yes absolutely yeah you're listening to bombay film story with mayank shekhar so here's the thing uh Smithy. i mean we're looking at your work in terms of say a suitable girl uh of course the said to is superman which that part of the fabulous film that you were nominated uh, the Oscars for you co-directed that particular documentary film. Uh, when you compare those two, and then you take uh, Indian matchmaking, which is what, firstly, what genre would you classify Indian matchmaking, and, <laughs> and thereafter, how is romantics very different from the other three films that you've done, or the three pieces of content that you've done? Yeah, 
<laughs> it's funny. I mean, it depends on who you ask. Some people might describe Indian matchmaking as a horror. Some people <laughs> might describe it as a comedy. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think, you know, for me, Indian matchmaking, it's sort of a more commercially accessible version, you know, of a story that is deeply familiar, you know, to a lot of people, you know, um, uh, especially people like me, you know, who are um, young people who have gone through the process of navigating, you know, um, what marriage means to us, you know, the the sort of traditions of our culture and of our families and sort of our, you know, sense of ourself, you know, and who we want to be in the world. Um, I think it's very familiar. And sometimes the things that are familiar can also make you cringe a little bit, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, you know, whatever it is, however people choose to categorize it, I think, you know, for the most part, you know, nobody has really described it as inaccurate. Um, so I'll take that as a win. But I think, you know, in terms of, you know, romantics, it's the first series that I've done or the first project that I've done that's been entirely archival, you know, and interviews. Most of my work is what we call verite filmmaking, you know, mm -hmm. so you're sort of filming people going through life in real situations, you know, trying to capture life as it happens. And this was my first sort of retrospective, you know, get something and, and, um, and my first archival and interview driven series, which stylistically was very different for me. And it was also a unique challenge, because there's there's a, a bit of a an assumption that those types of series are very sort of academic, you know, and can feel a little bit boring, you know, um, sometimes. So it was a bit of a challenge for me to find out how to take that format and make it feel, and just with those tools, you know, old footage and interviews, talking heads, and make it feel kinetic and alive and entertaining, you know, for a wide audience, especially for an audience that, you know, many people are not accustomed or not, you know, don't typically watch documentaries. So that was a unique challenge for me. And I'm obviously very, you know, grateful and, and um, you know, gratified that people do seem to be, you know, um, entertained by it and, you know, have taken it for the way that I intended. But, you know, in terms of like a through line in all of my work, this didn't occur to me until recently, but everything that I've made has some version of a parent-child story, you know, mm. and centered parent-child story. And I don't know what that's about. <laughs> you know, it's just something that occurred to me, but that's definitely a trope that's found its way, you know, in, in all of my work. And that's definitely true of the romantics. And maybe that's why, you know, the series evolved the way it did, you know, as opposed to just being a retrospective of a filmmaker and his greatest films. It sort of became this family story, you know, about a, a father and his sons and, you know, and, you know, hopefully, you know, it added a layer, you know, to it that was unexpected and uh, maybe a little gave it a little more depth. Right. I mean, also the space itself, Smriti, I mean, a, a lot of us believe and perhaps rightly so. I mean, we call it nonfiction or we can call it, uh, uh, I, you know, I heard this term in one of your previous podcasts, uh, uns a premium unscripted. Right. Yeah. And that is what you would classify Indian matchmaking, if I'm not mistaken. Would that would the romantics also be a premium unscripted? Would that be the genre that you would categorize <laughs> that under? Yeah. These are such funny distinctions because they're like this is very much like an OTT phenomenon, you know, these distinctions. So you have reality, you have document on one end of the spectrum, you have documentary on the other end of the spectrum. And then in between you have these different, you know, things like premium unscripted and docuseries and whatnot. I would say romantics, you know, is um I would call it a docuseries, you know. I think, you know, it's uh there's no producing you know, beyond the crafting of the story through the edit, you know, mm. 
And I think for that reason, it, it it sticks to the principles of documentary, you know, a particular form of documentary, which is more archive driven, you know, like Ken Burns and, you know, whatnot. But it is very much documentary. Right. And it's really like I couldn't I can't even say resurgence because there was never a better time for this particular format of storytelling. It's really I mean, the number of people who've seen documentaries in the past few years since, say, Netflix has been around is, is incredible, don't you think? It's literally given a shot in the arm to a genre that did not exist in the mainstream at all. Yes, absolutely. And it's great. It's wonderful. And I hope people take away from this and seeing these docuseries, you know, um, is that there is as compelling of storytelling in documentaries um, as there is in fiction. You know, I mean, I think there's a perception that documentary is kind of academic and anthropological and a little, you know, kind of stiff, but there is riveting storytelling across every genre, you know, um, in nonfiction. And, um, you know, hopefully people are starting to see that. And that completely changed the direction of your career, right? Smithy, if I'm not mistaken, you started out uh, with ambitions to be a feature filmmaker from a fiction point of view. Uh, you've actually worked with Coen Brothers and some really big names. Uh, take us through your early years, uh, Smithy, uh, briefly, uh, where you were, where you were headed, and where you actually ended up. <laughs> you know, I so I started my career very young. I started as a teenager, you know, straight out of high school. I started working at a film production company. And, um, you know, I obviously had grown up with a lot of exposure to the film business through my father. And so it was just, I mean, I had maybe like a, a year of rebellion, you know, where I thought I would be in advertising and, mm. you know, <laughs> and and then very quickly realized like what I, what I really care about, what I'm really passionate about is film, you know, um, and the film industry. So I started really young. I started, you know, um, as an intern at a production company in Los Angeles and would work pathological amount. You know, I would work, you know, um, every single day. I would stay late in the office, come in early to the office. You know, I would want to file every paper so I could read, you know, all of the scripts and all of the contracts and learn and absorb. And, you know, I would sit there before this was pre, this is how old I am. This was like before like the prevalence of IMDb and internet and all of that, there was like, um, there was internet, but it was like early days of internet. So we had this like kind of computer database that sat in one office, you know, um, uh, called the studio system of all of the different directors and their filmographies and what films they were going to make and what they were attached to. And I would just sit there all, you know, at every, my lunch hour, I would come in early, I would come on weekends sometimes and just, just study it and absorb it and learn all the names and learn, you know, everything. And it, I just was really passionate. I was insatiable, you know, when it came to that. And, you know, of course, like I had my dad to talk to about all of this, you know, we were equally obsessed with it. So we would talk about all of this all the time. And, you know, but for a long time, I thought my path was producing. And so that's the path that I took, you know, I worked some of the biggest filmmakers in the business, you know, the Coen brothers and Oliver Stone and uh, whatnot really learned, you know, about the studio system, you know, in, in that route. I also produced independent films, um, you know, and I think a lot of this was at a time because I didn't see very many models of myself, you know, in uh, as directors, you know, I always felt that my role I mean, I think I realize this now in hindsight is that maybe my role as a woman in the film business is to the, the highest I could achieve is to be a support, you know, to a creative visionary, you know, um, as a producer and try to be like the right hand person, you know, to uh, a director. And, you know, when I realized that I had my own stories to tell, you know, I pivoted to documentary because there are fewer gatekeepers in nonfiction. Mm. 
Um, you know, you don't need a million dollars, you know, or crores of rupees. You don't need buy-in. You don't need a godfather in the industry. You don't need buy-in from anybody, really, you know, um, to make documentaries. If you find a compelling story, if you get access, you find a great character, a great subject, um, and you can turn on a camera, you know, you can essentially make a documentary. Um, now, of course, I'm not saying it's that easy to make a really good documentary, but mm -hmm. it's just more accessible, you know, um, as a medium to people who are traditionally, you know, um, have less access, you know, to the industry. And so that's how I got started in documentary, because I had a really I had a story that I was, you know, really burning to tell. And um, and in the process of making that film, which ended up being a suitable girl, I just fell in love, you know, with this medium. I thought it was so rigorous and so challenging and, you know, um, and then it just so happened that by the time I emerged, you know, on the other side of the seven year journey of making my first documentary, the market had sort of met, you know, me where I was. And that's was the beginning of the documentary, the nonfiction boom, you know, thanks to the OTTs. So it all kind of worked out that way for me. Which is fascinating, right? Because you spent seven years of your life making your first film, which I mean, of course, I mean, you can spend as many years making anything because it's really when the idea seeds into you and they become something more real. But when you compare fiction, because you have worked there, you know, as in the role of a producer uh, for that long, I mean, for instance, if I give you an example of a nonfiction book and a fiction book, uh, obviously yeah. a lot more effort in nonfiction, you have to constantly meet people, whereas fiction in comparison seems like a brain dump. You know, whatever yeah. you thought, you just put it there. It's your fantasy. You take it, you leave it, right? Yeah. Or would you think it's similar when it comes to documentary because and, and, and feature fiction because after all, again, in feature fiction, you have to build things, uh, which is yeah. very different from from the writing, right? I will say, as someone who does also write fiction screenplays, I feel incredibly intimidated by a blank page. So mm -hmm. I would never underestimate, you know, how much of how how much work and thought goes into even um, uh, fiction, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's novel or or screenwriting or what have you. Uh, my my husband is also a screenwriter, so you know, I wouldn't minimize, you know, the amount of effort that goes into the work that he does. But I think one of the key differences is, is that documentary, you know, a big part of the process of nonfiction, whether it's, you know, writing or documentary filmmaking, is exploration. You know, you're not sort of processing the world as you see it, you know, and putting it on a page um, and fictionalizing it and creating it, you know, from your mind. You have to question, you have to go out and ask questions and you have to understand and absorb, you know, the world and allow yourself to be taken on a journey that evolves, you know, over the course of making any particular project. Um, and I think the best work, nonfiction work, is one that you, that you evolve with, you know, your perspective evolves. For me, you know, the greatest moment, you know, when I'm making something is the moment where I step back and I realize, oh my gosh, all of the assumptions that I had when I started this project, you know, are are wrong, you know, or, or they're incomplete and I have to rethink think, you know, what I'm saying, or, you know, th that to me is a great moment, because then I feel like I've actually tapped into something that I didn't know before. So I think there is, you know, there's a really enticing aspect of nonfiction storytelling that involves exploration and um, of the world around you. And, you know, it's like every project is like a PhD, you know, thesis dissertation, you know, every project requires you to research and form a theory and test that theory and then put it together in a narrative and then present it to the world and hope that others, you know, will resonate with it, you know, in some way. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I think fiction offers its own magic, but there's also magic in, in nonfiction. You're listening to Bombay Film Story with Mayank Shekhar. Right, you know, I have to, uh, and I'm sure you've got this criticism so far, the romantic concerns, maybe, um, is the idea of whereas documentary is by itself independent in nature in terms of storytelling, 
There is the other element, which is a uh, hagiography, which could be the narrative of the subject itself, which is where the subject has complete control of the story that goes out there. I'm sure you got some of that criticism with the romantics. Where do you find yourself on that debate? Yeah, look, I think that's very valid. And I think as a filmmaker, that's always a line that you're trying to navigate. You know, for me, for this particular project, I didn't set out to make an expose, you know, or um, an all-encompassing view of Hindi cinema. You know, I mean, for me, I've always found that in storytelling, the, the universal is best seen through the specific. And so it was always my intention to tell the story of Hindi cinema through a filmmaker, you know, mm. and through... The, the sort of story of a filmmaker, and also to appeal to a sense of wonder and nostalgia, you know, in in revisiting, you know, those films, you know, and, and providing some context for those films. It was the aim was not to take a cynical look, you know, at, at Hindi films or the Hindi film industry. Of course, that doesn't mean that you ignore, you know, some of um, the hardships or the more unsavory aspects of it. But, you know, it was a conscious choice, you know, for me to make something that felt informative, celebratory, you know, and tapped into the things that we love about movies, as opposed to the things that we don't love, you know, which I think is debated constantly on social media, um, especially in recent years. So that was the style that I chose for the series, you know, um, and, you know, I tried to stay as honest, you know, to the story of the Chopra family as possible. But yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's it's a stylistic choice more than anything. But I think it's right. a very valid question in terms of, you know, especially when you're sort of, it's, it's a very valid question, you know, when you're making something like this to not veer too far into hagiography, you know, uh, to the point where the narrative feels dishonest. Well, you know, we spoke about the first interview that that Joker has given on camera, but you also interviewed Rishi Kapoor, and that turned out to be his last interview, to the best of my knowledge, to the best of our knowledge, before camera anyway. Take us through that experience, and if I'm not mistaken, you shot quite a lot with him, and that in itself becomes something I'm, I really hope you can just put it out on YouTube for people to see, because that is great archival material too. How long did you shoot with him? Are there things that he said that you sort of remember, which you couldn't put, because, you know, it's still only a series. It was, I mean, honestly, that was one of the highlights of my career, you know, was being able to do that interview. And, you know, of course, at the time, had no idea that it would be his last interview. But knowing that in hindsight, you know, it, it's such a, a privilege, you know, to have been able to do that. What really I remember about that day, I mean, we spoke for hours, I can't remember exactly how long, but it was quite a long time. What I remember so distinctly, one that he was on time, <laughs> which is which is really amazing. Which was clearly all, rare, right? For all the other... Very rare, yeah. <laughs> very rare. But he just was like the Rishi Kapoor that you always imagine, you know, will walk into the room. Like charming, handsome, you know, perfectly dressed. He was wearing this like, I just remember seeing his, this beautiful purple suit, you know, he was wearing with the um, pocket square and everything, you know, perfectly put in. And he just, he just looked good. You know, he looked healthy. I mean, almost to the point that I, I, I would have never imagined on that day that we would lose him a month later. Um, obviously, I knew he had been having health problems, but like he just, he seemed on the rebound, you know, that day. But also in hindsight, you know, I think there was a lot of, there was like a nostalgic mood in the air, you know, um, that day. And he just was very indulgent of me to like, just ask him all about his career and about his relationship with Yash Chopra and his, you know, taking me through the journey of all the films that they made together and, you know, um, his regrets and his achievements and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And I think maybe, maybe somewhere he was, you know, thinking about his own legacy and it felt maybe, I, I don't want to speak on his behalf, but like, you know, maybe somewhere that he felt 
um, in the mood to reminisce, you know, and I think because of that, for whatever reason, whatever things conspired, you know, on that day, it was truly a special interview. And, and uh, absolutely, there's a lot left in there, you know, um, that we weren't able to use in the series, you know, that that hopefully, you know, can be shared with the world in some form or fashion one day. I'm sure when you do that many interviews, and you had about 35 movie stars, which is like the most number of movie stars on screen <laughs> ever, right? Uh, at least so far as Bollywood is concerned. Uh, and you have only that much time. Are there stories, uh, including Rishi Kapoor perhaps, that you wish you could include but couldn't? Is there any interview you did, someone who said something that was really interesting that you can share with us, which you couldn't watch in the romantics? Oh, definitely. There was so much, so much left that we couldn't include. I mean, you know, I could have done an entire episode just on Diwar you know, and the impact of that film and what it said about, you know, where India was at that time. And we had amazing perspectives from people who, you know, who talked about that film, you know, so much more, you know, of Salim Khan talking about, you know, how the the sort of background of that film and the backstory of casting Amitabh Bachchan and, you know, all of that, that I would have loved to have included. Um, there was, there's so much more. It's so funny. I mean, it's like now when, once you edit and once you remove something from an edit as a filmmaker, sometimes you have to, there's like a, a necessary amnesia that sets in because you cannot, you know, you have to they call the phrase is calling killing your darlings and you have to let things go you know and sometimes I have to like literally scrub them from my mind in order to not like grieve you know the loss of these moments every day but there are so many things you know you can only imagine the kind of insight that were shared with me from from Shah Rukh Khan you know about his career there are films you know I would have loved to have gone deeper into Dilto Pagal here and Virzara, you know um, these films that I loved and were so iconic in their own rights but just in terms of the the arc of the story and the timing in the story it just you know wasn't possible to include in there we had a whole section that we edited about the choreography you know in the later films you know that came from Yashraj films and how the sort of the sort of classic Yash Chopra heroine you know really evolved you know in those later films and became a little bit more risque and you know like that was really interesting section that we had that we we couldn't include uh, there's just honestly there's so much there's so much but hopefully you know we'll find ways to utilize all that material you know or hopefully you know it'll be somewhere in a vault for another filmmaker 25 years from now to discover and use you know um, for other films I think archive is a huge gift in storytelling so if I can leave that you know gift for others to discover um, then I will also be okay with that right I mean uh, just uh, to end on Another note, which is uh, nostalgia of another kind, uh, Smithy. I mean, uh, of course, what we have in common, and which is for most Indians, is, is our love for Bollywood. But I discovered while uh, you know watching some of your podcasts that you've done before, is love for this fascinating documentary called Junoon by Paul Thomas Anderson. And that's a film that you watch before you shoot anything. What fascinates you about that one particular film? Of course, it's set in India. For those who haven't watched it yet, it's I think on movie. I remember watching it during the pandemic. It's set in India, set in Rajasthan, conference of music. What is it about that one particular piece of work that makes you go back to it again and again? I mean, that film, first of all, it's like under an hour. You know, it's just this like beautiful jewel of a film um, made by one of my favorite filmmakers, Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, for me, I think the why I gravitate towards that film so frequently and why it feels like a almost like a caffeine jolt, you know, before I'm starting any creative process of my own, is that it's just this beautiful observation of the creative process, you know, of these incredible musicians um, from different parts of the world who come together to record an album. And there's very little artifice, you know, in there. There's very little, it's just, you know, 
I think one of the master strokes of, of P.T. Anderson, you know, in making that film was that he just let you feel like you were in the room, you know, with these musicians as they were tuning their instruments and trying to figure out arrangements and, you know, um, sometimes dealing with power outages, you know, that led to lazy afternoons. And, you know, it was just this beautiful, it's just this, you just get to swim in the creative process. And when, for me, when I'm embarking on, you know, a creative process of my own, I want to feel energized about it. I don't want to feel overwhelmed by it, you know? And especially editing sometimes can feel really overwhelming. So I think for that, it just, it frees me, you know, watching that uh, that film. And uh, and also I will say, I really love the way you have these artists from different parts of the world who come together to make an album, but there's no hierarchy, you know, in terms of like the way the talent is portrayed. You know, the Rajasthani artists are portrayed with as much regard, you know, as the Israeli singer or Johnny Greenwood, you know, the amazing producer, you know, from England. Um, you just, it's just a meeting of creative minds, you know, and that together they produce this incredible work. The album also I listen to all the time. So yeah, I think it's just, it's like a, it's just, it's like coffee for me, you know, it's like caffeine. You know, when there are, uh, and this is my final question to you, Smithy, and because we'd like to know what you're up to next, because when it comes to feature filmmakers, you know, you could be working on multiple scripts at the same time. Whereas when you're exploring as a nonfiction filmmaker, you have to be out of the street. Does that change? Like, are you already onto something when you're doing one thing? Does it need to be just one thing all through? And what are you up to now? <laughs> um, no, I don't do one thing at a time. I, I always, you know, have multiple things going at a time, though I try to be rigorous and only making sure I'm either, there's little overlap in terms of when I'm filming something or editing something, you know? So I try not to be editing more than one thing, you know, at a time or um, or filming more than one thing at a time, though sometimes there's a little bit, you know, of overlap there. But yeah, you know, like you have to keep, you know, multiple things going. I'm, I'm, um, I'm back into producing a bit more these days, you know, just because I want to use my increasing access, you know, as a storyteller, you know, um, to bring more people and to help sort of um, shepherd other filmmakers, you know, um, and their stories um, and, and be a part of films that, I believe should be told, but maybe I'm not the right person to tell them. Um, so I'm producing more these days. I'm writing more. I'm doing more in fiction as well, you know, writing and um, and uh, um, also directing more in fiction these days, which has been really fun because working with actors is one thing that I can't do in nonfiction and I love doing it. You know, it's just like working with a whole other instrument, you know, um, it's really great. And yeah, I mean, you know, my, my hope for the near future is I would love to um, direct a fiction film. Um, I haven't done that yet. I've directed directed television, you know, um, fiction television, and I've directed a lot of nonfiction features and things like that. But um, I haven't directed a fiction feature yet. So I would love to do that. And in terms of what I have coming up next, um, I have a, a short documentary I'm working on, another short documentary that's about a man on death row who seeks forgiveness, you know, from the family of his victim in the, the weeks leading up to his execution. So it's a lighthearted, you know, <laughs> a lighthearted thing. Just kidding. It's very, very dark, you know, serious subject, which is why it's a 30 minute film. So I've been working on that. And, um, you know, now just trying to keep myself open for inspiration, you know, and hopefully opportunity that comes from, you know, the way that the romantics has been received. Of course, everyone wants to know from you, Smithy, is there going to be Indian Matchmaking 3? And is there going to be the romantics too? 
<laughs> Indian matchmaking three, yes, there will be. In fact, it'll be out in just a few months. I don't have an exact release date yet, but it'll be soon. You know, in the next few months, it'll be out. Romantics two, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's going to be difficult to top this one, um, but I'm certainly open to it. I think there's a lot more to explore in terms of um, Hindi cinema and, and Indian cinema. You know, from other regions. You know, I would love to. You know, to uh, do something on one of the iconic, you know, and legendary actors. You know, of of our industry. Um, and tell that story, you know, I would love to do something on South cinema, you know, and, um, you know, explore that world. So I would, I would love to do more. So if anyone's looking for a documentarian, <laughs> my, my, uh, my, my DMs are open. Well, I'm sure the audience are looking for another one from you. The show must go on. Thank you very much Smithy, for joining us on the Bombay Film Story. Thank you so much. This is wonderful.